Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about player psychology. We're going into the brain of the gamer. We're trying to figure out how to design games that really speak to different kinds of people, different kinds of gamers. And we have Corey Butler. He is a social psychologist and a professor over at Southwest Minnesota State University, which is a mouthful. But, uh, Corey, really glad you're on the show. Welcome. To, welcome. Thanks, Gage. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited. You're, you're a guy that uh, I found on Board Game Geek, actually uh, a listener and a, and a Previous guest on the show, uh, Mr. Jason Perez, he, he said, hey, have you seen this guy, Corey? He's got some really cool blogs about player psychology and, and gaming psychology, and so you need to check it out, and you need to have him on the show. And so I went and I looked at your blogs, and I read them, and I was like, yes, that is correct. He needs to come on the show. And so I'm, I'm glad you agreed, and I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, it's nice to hear, and it's good to hear that I've got at least two people that like my blog. <laughs> That's right. But you get a lot of comments, too. I, I see a lot of people on your, your blogs and your surveys and the things you talk about. They're, they're engaged, man. It's exciting stuff, uh, especially when it re, you know, relates to gaming and this kind of thing. But uh, just in case people haven't read your blogs, kind of give me your bio. Who are you? How would you get into games? All that good stuff. Oh, shoot. Well, okay. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a social psychologist, and um, you know I've been a game. Gamer my entire life, pretty much. I started with, uh, you know, Risk and Monopoly, what everyone else starts with. I got into wargaming a little bit, Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, ended up in the Euro game movement. I guess I found Board Game Geek around 2004, I'm thinking, is when I joined. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've uh, really been a gamer for, for a long time. Gotcha. Now, what made you want to start blogging? I guess I I was um, I've always been thinking about how games relate to psychology. You know, a game is just a microcosm, and you should see the same kinds of human behavior and a lot of the same kinds of issues. So it just seems like a natural fit. Uh, two passions, you know, I like gaming, I like psychology, and uh, one day I just sort of put together a survey, uh, really just for fun, and uh, a lot of people took it. I got 522 people that took it. I, I announced it on Board Game Geek, and I thought, well, I guess I'll, I should share the results. I was going to just share the results in a post, but I thought I got a lot to talk about, so I started doing a blog. Yeah, I guess. Now, what were some of the, the things on that survey that you were looking for? Well, I was looking at personality traits. I've, I've done some research on personality, so I was really interested in looking at that and see how that related to gaming. I, I threw in some motivation questions, just sort of a it's an afterthought, and that, that turned out to be just as interesting, I think, in terms of the results. Yeah, very cool. And I, and I think we're going to be talking about some of the things that you found uh, in okay. the show. I'm excited to kind of dive into some of those things. But as we get going, what, what is player psychology? Like, give me a good working definition, just in case people never heard of it. They never dove into the design theory of things. They've just been, you know, playing games and working on games. But, like, what is player psychology? Well, player psychology, that's got to be a pretty big topic that's yeah. going to refer to uh, any any kind of psychological phenomena related to gaming, right? So that could re reflect aspects of the player, aspects of the game, aspects of the interaction. It could reflect the emotional experiences and the, um, the states of mind of the players. Uh, you could talk about the cognitive aspects and how people are thinking about that. So uh, really, that's a, that's a pretty broad topic, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's much broader than the uh, 45 to 55 minute episode length that I try to keep it in. So we're going we're gonna <laughs> to focus in on a few things. And I tell you what, if, if 
if it uh, turns out that we just really need to go in deeper uh, with some more things, we'll just have to have you back on the show. It just that's just how it'll be. You just have to come on for part two, right? Okay, we'll do what we can. <laughs> All right, let's start off. <laughs> why? What, what, why is this important? Why is it important to think about player psychology when you're working on a game? Why is this uh, something that more people need to be aware of? I guess from a design point of view you want to make sure people are having a good experience with the game. So there's got to be some elements of psychology that game designers would have to consider, even if they're not consciously making the decision to think, oh, I'm going to be doing psychology here. I'm sure they're thinking about it on some level. You know, what, what leads to an enjoyable experience? What's an appropriate time length, uh, rule length? I mean, these are all variables that I'm sure game designers have to think about, whether or not they're calling it player psychology or not. But it does seem like it's important. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. I think a lot of times we just call it fun. Are the, are the people at my table having fun? And if you don't go any deeper than that, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But I feel like a game can get so much deeper, so much better if a designer really thinks through, okay, what is causing this fun? Right? What is causing this emotional response, these chemicals in the brain to react in a certain way that makes people smile or makes them stand up for that last, last die roll they're hoping you know, that turns out right? And so I, I feel right. like this is something that uh, the more you, you understand it, the better your games can be. Is, is that a fair assessment? That makes sense to me. And, you know, it is something that's hard to get a grip on. I mean, on one level, everyone knows what fun is, yeah. and we all want to have fun. But how exactly do we get that? That's a little bit more complex question, you know. Yeah, definitely, and that's why I want to have you on the show. I want to talk about these things, uh, and maybe uh, designers can get just a glimpse of that little bit deeper uh, state of things and make their games better. And so let's let's start off. Let's talk about winning and losing, kind of the the binary, like uh, the typically binary issue of fun or not, right? Typically, when people win, they have fun. When people lose, they don't have fun. But that's not necessarily the case, right? Because there's a lot of different personality types, a lot of different things that kind of go into that. But let's start off talking about just kind of the psychology of winning and losing, especially based on the uh, surveys and different things that you've done to kind of uh, peer into this. Well, I def definitely did find that there is a personality difference. Uh, some people are just more motivated to think that way. They want to win. They don't want to lose. Um, they get more invested in that outcome. Um but everyone's not the same. Some people are, are really, they don't care about that so much. Their, their goals are to enjoy the interaction, enjoy socializing, playing the game, and, and so on. So, so people do emphasize it differently. I, I think probably at some level everyone wants to win at least a little bit. Seem like, maybe that's just my bias because I, I, I like to win. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you know, people do emphasize it differently. I, I also wanted to mention that there's a difference between wanting to win and wanting to avoid losing. Yeah, that's right. You know, on difference. the surface, they're the, they're the same thing, but they're really not at all. And so some people, they might want to be number one. They might really want to win. Whereas there might be somebody else who doesn't really care if they win or not, but they, they kind of hate coming in last, you know. That's, right. not, that's not fun, coming in last. So those are, those are differences. And it does really relate to the person. And uh, I think it has a lot to do with self-esteem and, I don't know, kind of ego strength, ego threat, as we used to call it some of those variables. Yeah, definitely. This is something I've talked to with, with students in, in my uh, high school class. I, was, I did a, a section on marketing, and what we talked about was loss aversion and how people, they hate losing, typically, more than they like winning, right? The, exactly. the emotion of losing is, is higher than the emotion of, of, of winning. And so and just kind of thinking through that from a game design standpoint, you make a great point. Winning is different than not losing. And so what what are some what's some advice you would give somebody designing a game to kind of to help them along as they understand this this loss aversion versus win, that kind of thing? What would you say? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> I'm not quite 
quite sure how that would be factored in from a design point of view, because, I mean, unless you're going a cooperative route, you're always going to have that potential for wins and losses. Um, maybe you can, maybe, you know, I'm just playing around with ideas here, but maybe you could de-emphasize it in some respects by offering multiple multiple sessions or multiple games rather than one big outcome. You know, I think, I just, I'm having a, I'm having a recollection of playing, uh, uh, what was it, Twilight Imperium, mm. big space game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was hours and hours and hours. And at the end of the game, you know, you've got one, you've got one winner and then you've got a bunch of people who did win. And, uh, and so that's, that's a big investment uh, of time and emotional energy into that game. Some people might have a harder time with that just because um, that the, the end result is not going to be satisfying to them. So for some people, I guess I'm thinking is that, you know, you want, you want shorter games, faster playing games. You really, you really want, a variety of choices out there so people can find what they want yeah that's a great point when you have eight hours of gameplay to think back through and go wow when did i screw up how did i lose it's yeah. different than having like 20 minutes of okay i made that one bad choice and that was kind of the end and so and yeah if someone if someone is very loss averse yeah. they, they could play that game and they, they never want to play that game again you know they're just not going to want to do that that's a great point and we live in, a, in an age where there's so many games that a lot of times if a person plays it one time, that's all they're ever going to play it. And so I think that's something just to, to kind of be aware of. Now, at the same time, I'm thinking through just kind of the – we live in an age of very, like, polarization. Everything's polarized. Everything's hot or cold. Nothing's in the middle. And, mm-hmm. But I'm wondering how that could be a good thing in games because it seems like games that are more polarizing tend to do better, right? The games that people love or hate tend to do better mm-hmm. overall than the, people, than the games that most people are like, oh, it's okay. You know what I mean? And so I'm trying to think through, like, do you, want to, do you want to be on one of those polls as opposed to just trying to make a game that's, you know, okay for everybody? Right. Well, you know, I guess you're never going to make a game for everybody. Right. And the games that are most for everybody, no one's probably going to get very excited about. You know, like yeah. sort of standard card games. A lot of people will play hearts or spades, but not that many people are just really thrilled with it. Right. I don't know if anybody really hates it. It's, you know, a lot of people have kind of a good game with that or, you know, sort of satisfactory kind of result. Um, but how do you get one that's going to be really hot for a certain number of people? Um, there's a lot of mystery involved in that. You know, in psychology, it's kind of an art and it's kind of a science. Mm. In game design, I'm sure it's the same way and definitely an art. Yeah. We haven't really gotten the data that we can, that we can say for sure. Right, that's a great point. There's no uh, template necessarily to making the next Gloomhaven or Pandemic Legacy or anything like that where people are like, yes, I love this game so much. Uh, and so I think it's just one of those you, you just do the best you can and, uh, and hope for the best. But I think, I think understanding player psychology, one thing Rob Davio talked about when they were putting together Pandemic Legacy is he did so much research on how to write a, a story that like the three act structure, like he went into movies and TV and like how to tell stories and then took all that data mm. that, that movie makers and, and, and TV, I mean, producers have been using forever for years and years, and years. I mean, Alfred, Hitch, Alfred Hitchcock did so much work with psychology of the viewer and Rob Davio took that data and those ideas and brought them to a board game. And it became the number one game in the world for a while until Gloomhaven came, you know, and took, took that spot. But I feel right. like understanding psychology of the people being entertained, and ultimately that's what we're doing. We're making, making things that entertain people and, and they can engage with. And I feel like the more you understand that, the more you can kind of really, I don't want to say manipulate. Manipulate has a negative connotation, but, but you can manipulate. You can mess with people's uh, psych- psychology and, and hopefully draw them in more and engage them more and get them more excited about your game. The, 
thoughts on yep. that as far as as far as that goes? Well, it seems like we might be getting into some, you know, that idea of theme right now too, right? Where you really want to tell a story. Uh, there's got to be that structure, you know, like the legacy. I think the legacy games. And I've never played a legacy game. I'm hoping to play Seafall coming up. I, be playing it soon, uh, but um, it seems to me that the legacy games really have that sort of story that unfolds over time, and um, that can be very appealing to people. People can really get into that, and um, along with the strong theme and interesting elements of the theme, that can go a long way. Um, seems to me that certain players, in particular, are going to be more drawn to that. You know, when I was looking at gaming motivations. I found that there's a certain group of pit players that really respond well to that theme. They're really looking for that that's good, that good story. And I imagine they're the ones that are probably going to be most interested in legacy games and those, those sorts of things. And it must be a lot of them because those are popular games. Yeah. Uh, other other players are probably going to be more interested in like a certain kind of design or maybe an easier design or a more parsimonious design. They might be interested in abstracts and whatnot. But those aren't going to be at the top of the board game geek list I don't think, are they? Yeah, probably not. I think with the popularity of games like Time Stories, uh, all these legacy games, Gloomhaven, which is, is super kind of, it's got a lot of story elements going on. I feel like that just seems to be mm -hmm. tapping into uh, us as people. Like there's something deep down about us that loves story and loves narrative. And you could uh, you could talk all the way back to like being a spiritual kind of thing and, and all the things that go into uh, religious texts that are very narrative driven and, and story based and, and how that just kind of seems to be a mark of mankind, right? I mean, that's, Totally different topic for a totally different day, but yeah, I feel like no, I think you're right. Uh, I feel like the story-driven stuff just really appeals to the psychology of players more so than you know playing. I mean, chess is awesome, but it, it's not super narrative. I guess you could come up with um, my knight on his you know incredible <laughs> dark steed. He <laughs> swoops in and kills your queen. You know, like whatever. I guess you could turn it into a story, but it just doesn't kind of lend itself to that. Like some of these games that are really focused on it. That's right. Now going back to losing, winning, and losing. As far as these kinds of games versus abstract strategy games, do you find that people who really love to win tend to love like really dry Euros or abstract, abstract games more than the th thematic dice roll and narrative games? Yeah, I did find there was, there was a little bit of a correlation there. You know, and it, it does seem to me that, that people who like the drier games and the abstracts that, um, you know, there's, there's a couple things going on there. There's that that cognitive challenge, you know, they, they like exercising their brains, they like using strategy, but then it's also decided by winning and losing. And, and a lot of people who play abstracts, they don't really like a game that draws, you know, they, they rather have a clear winner or a loser. That doesn't seem to be such a big issue for people who are more drawn to the thematic games. Again, as long as there's a good story, the, uh, the outcome at the very end is maybe less important. Yeah, now this is something I was talking to Richard Garfield about uh recently and he talked about the difference between luck and skill and th these different concepts kind of go into uh, why people play games and all that and so i guess with the abstract game in theory there is more skill going on than luck which if, right. you, if you really want to win like if winning is your thing then you're probably going to want to play games that you have a, a more control over right you're not rolling a Def bunch of dice and hoping for the best is, is that right definitely yeah that's exactly right and uh, if there's luck involved uh, that's really going to be repellent to people who are really into abstracts, really want to have that be a, a, an intellectual contest that is decided by the player with the most skill. But then again, the thematic games, they fit well with luck, don't they? There's always, well, not always, but there's lots of dice involved or random events, and um, that seems to help in many cases. It helps make an interesting story even. 
Yeah, definitely. There's something else that Richard Garfield brought up was another good thing about having a little bit of luck in a game is the the person that really has to win. What well, gives them a scapegoat? And you go, know, well, it was you only won because that one die roll. Like you only won, but you know, it kind of gives them <laughs> a, a way to feel a little bit better about losing. And it's just kind of interesting the psychology people have with this stuff. A little bit of luck actually gives people a psychological out, doesn't it? Yeah. It gives you that excuse. And uh, I can always say, well, I got bad cards, you know, bad dice rolls. Right. I mean, how many times have gamers heard that? <laughs> and that's okay. You know, I mean, sometimes people feel a little bit of a need to salvage their ego right, right. after a loss. Uh, that, that's, that doesn't hurt anybody, right? right. And uh, it, can, uh, it can help, I think, make that game have a little broader appeal. Again, chess is a great game, but not everyone's going to want to play chess. Not everyone wants that, that dry intellectual challenge. And... Um, you know, I think actually I've got a quote for you. There was a, a chess player and a psychologist, Ruben Fine, and he said that chess was a highly ego involved game, you know, because there's really no excuse when you when you when you lose, you, you just blame yourself. That, that's pretty harsh. You know, a lot of people when they're playing a the game, they, they want to have fun. They don't want to go going through that kind of struggle. Yeah, that's a great point. And. Uh, so let's talk about finishing second. Like, did you, have you found anything in your research that suggests that finishing second makes people feel a little bit better than finishing fourth or anything like that? Or is it more binary? Is it I lost or I won? That kind of thing. Well, I think it's I, I lost or I, I think it's either I won or I didn't win, and then I lost or I didn't lose. So I think it's kind of really maybe two binary categories. I haven't really looked at it in my research at least, in terms of like levels or how that's going to break down if there's multi multiple players. But um, certainly there's, um, there's, that, there's that feeling of coming in last place, you know. And then you know you, you, know you lost at that point. And, and so that's a certain kind of feeling that a lot of people are going to avoid if they're, if they're sensitive to that. Um, but that's different from not winning. You can, you can be in the middle. You can not win. You don't necessarily need to come in last place. So it's, it is different kind of different um, states of mind, I guess, different, different conditions. Yeah, for sure. This happened to me the other day. I, uh, I was playing a game that I'd never played before. Uh, it was three of us playing, and it was my first time and another friend's first time. And another guy, he had, he had played before a, few, a number of times, so he really had a handle on what was going on. And I remember the final score was like he had 100, 110 points, and the other guy next to me, he had like 104. So it was really close between those two. And then I had like yeah. 60. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is, we need to play this again. Like, this, is not, this is not okay. Right. You know? <laughs> and so in that regard, it made me want to play more. It made me want to like figure out, like, what did I do wrong? What did I do terribly wrong that I need to correct and I need to do better for the next round? And so is that typical, or is that just kind of based on a person's personality, how they're going to respond to the, the, the terrible loss? You know, I think that takes us back to personality again. Uh, there's another psychologist, Martin Seligman, who studied what he called were optimists and pessimists. And, and uh, he said that optimists, you know, when they, when they suffer a loss or a setback, they, they, they're going to bounce back. They're confident that they can do better the next time. They want to play again, right? Mm -hmm. Let's try again. Um, pessimists, though, um, they take that loss more personally. They tend to blame themselves, they don't think they're going to get any better, you know, and they, they might just give up. They just don't even want to play again. Play something else. So really, really two different attitudes toward the world, two different kind of pessimistic or optimistic uh, attributional styles is what he called it. Gotcha. And so it really kind of does come down to the individual player with a lot of this stuff. I think it does. 
Yeah, let's talk about uh, a catch-up mechanism. So a lot of games, they, you know, if a player falls way behind, there are mechanisms in place to kind of help bring them back to where they're competitive, where maybe they could win. It's possible. You know, you don't just you don't just end up way off in the distance. Like, apparently I was. This is one of those games I was playing that you don't count the victory points to the end. And so I didn't know how badly I was losing until, like, we counted up victory points. I was like, wow, yeah, yeah, okay, that was terrible. And so, like, what are your thoughts on catch-up mechanisms, especially as, the, you know, we're talking about the psychology of winning and losing? Yeah, seems like a good idea, doesn't it? Because that's going to give the broadest number of people the most chance. And, uh, you know, it gives everyone a feeling that they're in it, at least. On the other hand, I suppose if people are very much about, really, I just want to win, and that's the only thing that's important, they're not going to like that mechanic, right? Yeah, right. They'd, they'd rather just, I'm just going to win, and uh, I, don't, I don't like anything that might compromise that. But then that's probably a minority of people, don't you think? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I think... I think in general people play games because they want to have a good time, right? We want to have fun. Yeah. And winning is yeah. helpful and having fun. But I feel like if you like if I'm playing a game, especially if it's a game I have recommended, like I have said, hey guys, let's play this game. And so now I am basically putting my reputation on the line to say, this is a good game. I think we should enjoy this. Uh, and if you look around the table and you see one person or two people at the table who are having a terrible time because they're way behind, they know they can't win, you know, the, the strategy they thought was going to work is was totally a bad idea. You like everybody starts to kind of feel bad about that. You're like, right. you know, unless unless you're just like the super ego, you know, I have to win. I don't care about the rest of you. But typically, you're playing with friends in a social setting and, and hanging out. And so I feel like having a catch up mechanism to kind of give people a better better chance uh, is better overall, just for the environment, just for the kind of atmosphere at the table. Yeah, I totally agree. I I, I suppose the trick is how do you do it? You know, yeah. you don't want it. You don't want it to be so strong or so much luck based that the first half of the game doesn't even matter at all right right? because that doesn't seem right but then you've got to give people a meaningful chance if they're way behind give them or or at least somewhat behind give them a chance to to be able to pull it out um that's that's a delicate balance though isn't it that's gonna be tricky to design a game that can do that well i guess that's where the playtesting comes in yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Playtesting is, is pivotal in this in figuring out what works best. But I feel like going back to what we were talking about with loss aversion, uh, I've seen some catch-up mechanisms where they take whoever's in last and they, they take resources or take away from whoever's in first and give it to the last player. And I feel like that's not the best way to do it because now the person in first is being punished for being a better player. Like they, they had a better strategy, right. they've had better things happen, and now they're being punished and you're giving it to the person behind. Where I feel like better catch-up mechanisms that kind of avoid that. Again, we're going into people hate losing stuff more than they like winning stuff. And so like you're, <laughs> exactly. they're, they're losing things, and that doesn't feel good. And so I've seen better mechanisms, catch-up mechanisms, where as you get farther ahead, it gets harder to get farther ahead. So, for instance, uh, you know, I've seen some games where you have to pay a certain amount of resources to cross a threshold in victory points. So, you know, to go from... 10 to 11 costs two victory points, but to go from 19 to 20 costs five uh, resources, not victory points, it costs resources. And so, like, as you get farther ahead, it gets harder to get more ahead, if that makes sense. I hope, hopefully I'm explaining that right. And so yeah, I feel like that's a better way to do it because you're, now you're, you're challenging the person in first place if they can figure out a strategy to get more ahead. Or it, it's almost like they're competing with the game as opposed to the game just taking stuff away from them for being in first place. Right, you're ramping up the challenge there, and you're avoiding that situation where you're you're literally taking cubes or something off of my board, which no matter how that's presented or how good that balances the game, that's just an unpleasant thing. You know, you're 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 taking something that's mine. I can see how people would not like that. Yeah, for sure. And I've seen other instances where people would be playing for second place 
until the final round because they didn't want the game to take stuff. And so they would have opportunities to get ahead, and they go, no, no, I'm going to stay in second place because I know if I'm in first, the game's going to take stuff away from me, and I don't want to do that. And so they would set themselves up to win at the end by playing for second during most of the game. And that's just like it's mind-boggling. It doesn't work in any other aspect of, of life, I don't feel like. Right? You, don't, you don't think about sports and go, no, no, we're going to play for second, and then hopefully, <laughs> and then hopefully we'll win. Like, it doesn't work that way. Playing for second, that's a great concept. I've got to think about that, right? Because they're, they're not, they don't have that winning motivation, but they definitely have the not losing motivation or not doing badly motivation. So they're just going to go for a second. Yeah, but in, until the final round, right? So if the game takes stuff from you all throughout the game, and then, but not at the end, right? And so you're playing for second until the final round. When you oh, know and then that, they pop into the top? Yeah, and then you go into yeah. first. And so you're kind of like playing. Ah. And maybe NASCAR is like that. I don't know. You know, I'm not a big – I'm from Alabama, so people would think that I'm into NASCAR, uh, just kind of the nature of demographics. <laughs> but uh, maybe NASCAR is kind of like that, where you want to your, – your, um, what's it called? Or like marathon running. It's kind of like marathon running, where you're kind of hanging back a little bit and then yeah. you're forced over the, over the top. Right. So I guess that was, that was incorrect for me to say other parts of life don't do that. Uh, drafting. Drafting is the word I was looking for earlier, um, where you're, you're drafting behind the person in front so you can kind of hang yeah. back and then, and then take, them over, take over at the very last lap or whatever like that. So I guess maybe that does have some, uh, some real-life connection to yeah. it. It just, it just seems odd that you play for second and then uh, try to win at the, at the very end kind of thing. Seems like a legitimate strategy, though. It's kind of interesting what kinds of things will surprisingly appear in games, though, isn't it? Especially multiplayer games. Right. All right, so let's, let's keep kind of talking about winning and losing, and let's mm-hmm. talk about cheating, right? How, uh, I don't know if you've done much research with this or what your research showed, but is, there, is cheating a, a big problem? Because I've seen some designers super worried about cheating, and they try to cheat-proof their games, so to speak, and they try to design in a way, oh, you can't cheat my game. Like, is it really that big of an issue that you really have to worry about? Oh, gee, you know, my intuition is that it's not, and I and I say that without having done any research on this whatsoever, okay. other than the you know the common finding that most people are mostly honest most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I suppose if you're very um, uptight about winning and uh, there's some cheating going on, that, that you know, even the possibility of that would 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 perhaps ruin the game for you. But it seems to me that. And this is just personal preference, I, I suppose, on my part. But it seems to me that I, I would much rather have an interesting game with an interesting experience that, okay, maybe someone could have cheated at some point than a cheat-proof game where they've sort of designed the mechanics so that it's just impossible to cheat. That's Yeah, that just sounds like that would not be as good of a design strategy to me. Yeah, I feel like the, the best mechanism to cheat-proof a game it really is... is on a case-by-case basis, where if you have friends that cheat to win, don't play with those friends. Like, that's, that's right. the mechanism, right? It's not the game's problem. It's, it's a friend problem. It's a group problem. And so, like, I don't feel yeah, like, yeah. as designers, we need to worry too much about it, like you're saying. Uh, is, this, is this something that has come up with anything that you've studied, just, you know, being a professor, being a, a psychologist, where you, you see people, maybe, maybe it's not even cheating, but maybe people who kind of will do anything it takes to win or to be successful, anything just from a, a general psychology standpoint that you've seen that would be kind of a, a correlation to kind of talk about? I'm trying to think if that would map onto any particular personality trait mm-hmm. or any kind of like um, other kind of motivational style. And I don't know. You know, there, there really hasn't been a lot of research on sort of the cheating phenomenon that I'm familiar with. But, you know, just talking to you, I'm getting all kinds of interesting ideas for future research. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. And it'd be cool to see some more blogs for that uh, you post on Board Game Geek and uh, maybe even have you back on the show in the future and kind of figure out you know, what, what you found. Because if you think about like with the Olympics or the Tour de France or like all these, especially with sports, I guess sports are, are just so 
pivotal in our societies across the world that you know you have steroid mm-hmm. use you have people doping and doing all these different things to kind of get ahead baseball you know, major league baseball had such a huge problem with steroids uh, and it literally is just people cheating to to get ahead and then you have these these other kind of side effects where where it seems like everybody's cheating so if you're not cheating you, you can't possibly win that's one thing I've, I've heard people talk about with the olympics like if you're not if you're not figuring out how to get ahead of the, right. the drug system then you're, you're not ever going to win which creates issues and so I if you assume everyone else is cheating then you're going to sort of think that that gives you permission to cheat too so mm. if everyone else is doping you know well then, then I, i'm going to do it too even if i'm not necessarily inclined to cheat uh, i might do it if i perceive that everyone else is doing it but um you know how, mu- how much is this going to be a factor in board games amongst friends i hope not much right and i guess that really what it come down comes down to is typically on game night you're not playing for a gold medal or, or a million dollar Wheaties contract, or you know, like uh, I don't know what Wheaties gives you, but anyway, like you're not really like the stakes aren't nearly as high, and so I guess that's kind of what it comes down to. Like, hopefully, people aren't cheating at Carcassonne, you know. <laughs> yeah, surely, surely, something is better in their lives to the point where they don't have to feel like they need to cheat on Settlers of yeah. Catan or something like that, right? I would hope so. Gotcha. Well, we've talked a lot about player personalities. Let's let's get into more of that. You know, some of the research uh, you've done, the the. Uh, blogs you posted, you talk about the big five personalities. So talk, talk to me about what those five are and let's try to figure out where they're, uh, you know, what, how they impact game design. Sure, sure. Well, briefly, um, there's five major personality traits that have been discovered through analysis. And uh, you can think of it as OCEAN. That's a good acronym. So OCEAN. Uh, O stands for openness to experience, people that are interested in learning and trying new things. I found they actually are kind of into role-playing games. They like exploring, you know, so that's openness to experience. Uh, C is conscientiousness. And I actually had a recent blog on conscientiousness, you know, whether you organize your collection, organize your bits. Um, some people are more kind of neat and don't like messes. And so that's conscientiousness. E is extroversion, you know, sociability. Uh, that That's going to play a role in games, too, uh, whether it's a more social interaction game or a party game. I did find that experts tend to be more interested in, in uh, party games, also gambling games. Um, a is agreeableness. People are agreeable, they're nice, they like to cooperate, cooperative games. That seems to be a correlation too. And then N is actually neuroticism. So people who are more neurotic are more anxious, and, uh, and they're probably going to be more likely to be a little bit loss-averse, not really want to lose, they don't like to feel bad. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the last one. So those are the big five traits. And, uh, and they do have some links with gaming in, in I think, some interesting ways. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about that and just saying, tell me a little bit more about how these five personality types were, were came, come up with. Like, how did, what was the process that, is this just a kind of like a general thing? Like, people in general fit into these five types, or, or what is it? Well, you know, it's the result of a lot of factor analysis, a lot of statistical analysis that was done on, on personality inventories. <clears throat> so, for a while, Psychologists were trying to figure out what are the what are the major traits you know that define personality. You know, are there are there, are there three, are there five, are there sixteen? And what you do is you just study correlations on trait ratings. And if a bunch of ratings correlate together, a bunch of traits correlate together, then you can kind of combine them, and then that's a sort of what we call a superordinate trait. So, for example, uh, people who are friendly, they're outgoing. They're social. They like to seek out parties and excitement. Uh, they like being out in the town. You know, all of those could be considered separate traits, but they all correlate together. If you're high on one, you'd be kind of scoring high on the others too. 
So uh, you know you can you can kind of statistically analyze that. You find all those correlations, and you have a you have a, a combined trait. We call that one extroversion. So that's how that was developed, and uh, that was years ago in psychology. Uh, several separate labs kind of came up with this independently of each other, and uh, now personality psychologists consider that the kind of the best framework for the um, you know the underlying elements of personality. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's years and years and years, decades of research and all that in in a, in a two minute elevator pitch, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about how these five things relate to gaming and and game design. Are there like, do you want to go through one by one and just kind of talk through each one, or is there just kind of general things that you've noticed? Well, some of them seem to be more relevant than others. Okay. Uh, so when I did my study, I had each of the five factors, and then I correlated that with different kinds of gaming preferences and so on. And I found that that uh, the two the two biggest things were the extroversion and the agreeableness. Um, that that seems to be more connected to gaming preferences than the other three traits. And that kind of makes sense because extroversion and agreeableness those are those are both the, the social dimensions. You know, whether you like socializing. Uh, cooperating with people, working with others, or whether you're more like to go on on your own alone more. Um, but that that one seemed to be the biggest one. So as I said, um, you know, uh, people who are more agreeable, they like they like cooperative games. They don't like antagonistic games. They don't like they don't like take that games. They don't like games with there's a lot of direct conflict. They would they would much rather have less conflict and more cooperation. Um, Bonanza just popped into my head. You know, it's a classic old game where you trade beans, and there's there's really not a lot of like take that or conflict going on there. Um, but there's social interaction. There's there's cooperation. It pays to be nice to somebody in Bonanza. You know, here have some beans. Do me a favor later. Right. Uh, and so I think that you know people who are again more more extroverted, more agreeable, they're going to kind of like that sort of game. Gotcha. I'm trying to think through how you could take this information in your game design process, right? To sit there and think, I don't know, any any thoughts on that? Like how to actually use this data in, in yeah, the game yeah. design? Any thoughts? That's the tricky part because yeah. for every personality trait, we've got its opposite, right? So for every extrovert, we've got an introvert who doesn't want to trade cards. He doesn't want to cooperate. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have a social experience. He just wants to kind of focus on his board. And, um, yeah, you know, when we, when we gain some people who will be interested in our games, we're probably going to be losing these other people. That's the, that's the problem. Um, I guess it maybe it has more to do with how you present the game once you've developed it, you know, that, well, this would be good for a certain type of person. And then you can maybe, I guess, market it toward, towards, or in a certain way towards certain types of folks but yeah that's one problem is that uh you know there could be both sides on each of these traits another issue I, I should mention is that the correlations i was observing were fairly small you know so there's a lot of exceptions you can yeah. find people who are agreeable and nice and they're still going to want to play a, a nasty game you know it's just a game for them yeah that's a great point and i think you, you bring up a really good idea is that you should be aware especially in your marketing of what kind of game 
the, it, it, what kind of it, gamer the game is for, right? And so whether yeah. it's with your art or what's on the cover, like I, I've seen a lot of games where you look at the cover and you're like, wow, this looks like an incredibly thematic, narrative-driven game. And you get into it and it's like, wow, this is the driest, most abstract game I've ever played. And like it didn't match up. <laughs> and so like making That's sure right. your art and, and your, even your font, like whatever you're using to kind of market the game, it lines up with the, st- the style of gamer you're trying to attract. I think Fantasy Flight Games has a bit of a problem with this. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of their stuff, but, but they, 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 every, every game box is very thematic and exciting mm-hmm. looking. Yep. And so, you know, they were selling through the desert. And that's, that's just putting camels. You know, that's, an, that's almost an abstract game. <laughs> right. You're just putting camels on hexes. Right. And the cover of Through the Desert has this, like, guy on a camel, and mm-hmm. it's like heroic sort of look. And I think people might have been disappointed, some of them, who bought that. So, yeah, I think, I think you want to communicate it in such a way that you're representing the kinds of you know motivations and personalities that are going to be involved yeah definitely now something i have given people advice on in the past and never really thought about it from this more psychological standpoint it was just more from a a practical standpoint but it's uh, have a gamer avatar in mind when you first start a game and so for instance if you want to make a game that appeals to uh, certain kinds of people like really think through what that person wants in a game. And I guess, you know, it'd be really good to kind of take these ideas of, of these different uh, player personalities and say, okay, I want to make a game for open people. And so what is that going to look like? Okay, you talked about they were really they really like enjoy RPGs and exploration and stuff like that. Okay, well that, that means my game needs to have those elements in there. Uh, and and yeah. just kind of taking these, not necessarily, oh, this is going to revolutionize your game designing, but I feel like it could help you, especially on the front end of saying, okay, I want to make a game for these kinds of people. Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you're an open person or maybe you're an agreeable person, whatever. And you say, I want to make a game for me and then for people like me and then kind of starting with that as the foundation and then adding these things that those people like on top of it. Is that, is that a fair yeah. thing to, to say? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially given what we We've already said about how you know no no game is going to please everybody, yeah. and so you want you want to pick you know what what exactly is this game and who is going to want to play it. And I think if you if you think about it in those terms, it, it might might be helpful. Yeah, definitely. And I've I've given people advice like get super specific. This is something that happens a lot in business where you have a customer avatar, and people in business they say and get really specific, right? Give him a name. So this is John, and John is 27 years old, and John is married, and he has one kid. And like you get really specific. And I feel like doing the same thing for a game. Like when you sit down, you go, okay, I want to make a game that's about beans, right? Bonanza, right? I want to make a game about beans, (laughs) which is you know silly, but uh, you think, okay, what kind of game? what kind of gamer do I want this to be for and say, okay, well, people that don't like take that. And so there's not going to be taking that elements or people that really like trading and, and, and working together and trusting one another and different things like that. And so then you start adding these other elements and mechanisms into the game that kind of lead to that gamer avatar that you've already created. I feel like, I feel like people don't do that enough. A lot of them, a lot of people don't think about that, but I feel like in the long run, it's going to help you make a more specific and a more focused game for a certain group of people, as opposed to just trying to make a game everybody likes. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense to me, for sure. Gotcha. Now, anything else as far as the personality stuff that you feel like is relevant in, into this conversation? Anything else you found in your research? Oh, let's see. What else? Um, I think that pretty much covered it. The only, other, the only other thing that was kind of interesting out of the data that I found was this tendency for extroverts to like to gamble. Yeah, okay, know? let's talk about they that. Actually, they actually kind of, yeah, they kind of want to... They want to feel that risk, you know, mm. that's a thrill, that's an yeah. excitement. And so they're, they're willing to, to, you know, put a little bit of money into a pot and um, that's kind of their, their area. So, so I guess if you're, if you're, if you're trying to appeal to extroverts, you want, you want some excitement like that. You don't want just a, a boring little, 
you know, board with cubes on it. You, you've got to have something going on. You've got to have money at stake. You've got to have um, interaction, you know. But but definitely, there's definitely different games for different people. And, and that's certainly the, the biggest lesson, I think, that I've learned. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, extroverts, they want high-risk, high-reward games. They want push-your-luck games. They, they want to feel the dice in their hand, and they're like, okay, I need, oh, yeah. I need a certain number, and then they roll it, and they, they get that rush. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, push your luck. That's great. You know, keep rolling the dice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, something we talked about before the show was, was kind of the, the Magic the Gathering uh, personality types. This is something I read about years ago, and I think I was in college and I was playing Magic. And, and they have the Timmy, the Johnny, and the Spike. And one of those, like all three of these are, are they, everybody wants to win. Like all three of these guys want to win, but they want to win in different ways, right? Where the Timmy, he wants to win big. Uh, he wants to crush his opponents. Uh, Johnny wants to win, but he wants to do it with style. He wants to like pull off these crazy combos and these, the way the cards work together and all that stuff. And then Spike is just win at all costs, right? I don't care if I win with one life left on the very last turn or whatever. He just wants to win 10 out of 10 times. And so are there any kind of connections between those winning styles, those player personality styles from Magic, with some of these uh, player personalities that we were just talking to? You know, maybe. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking about this off the top of my head here. And um, it, is, it is possible that... Uh, agreeableness uh, might be involved here. I think people who are who are a little bit more um, more agreeable, or maybe not not necessarily that keen on winning, but people who are lower on that trait, uh, they definitely like that competitive atmosphere. Uh, they're probably going to want to. Well, I would imagine they're going to want to win at all costs. Um, probably that that crushing win too. What was it, Timmy? Timmy winning really. Yeah, Timmy wants to win winning. big. He wants to win. He's yeah. got full life, and you have nothing. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're high in agreeableness, you're kind of nice and sympathetic. You're feeling bad. You're you're not really going to be trying to win that way. Mm-hmm. So that that could be an issue. I'm I'm really interested in the Johnny one though, the winning with style. Uh-huh. How does that work? Is that is that a story? Is that a thematic kind of thing, or is it just that they like? clever combination so it's I, more of an intellectual puzzle i think it's a little bit of both but um i know with magic so when when you're playing magic you're building this deck that's one thing people love about magic they get to kind of take these cards and put them together and come up with these really cool combos and the way things work and the way cards come out and the way they play off each other and so mm-hmm. johnny wants to build a deck that has some kind of really cool interesting and some people that are like extreme johnnies they have like a one percent chance that if these cards work out the way they hope (laughs) then they'll do this amazing thing and they'll win on one turn you know like they'll do 20 damage in one turn or something crazy like that and and i've I've played against guys and played you know from friends of mine are like this they they would build these magic decks they were just ridiculous and they they wouldn't win very often like and but they yeah. were they were okay with that because like the the one time they did win it was insane the way they did it and it created this really funny story and this really cool thing we talk about you know we still talk about hey remember that time this happened and so that's kind of their mentality it's like all right winning is important but the way I win is really what's it's actually important yeah yeah definitely and that that seems to me like that one just stands out a little bit different mm-hmm. from the other two and it really has to do with. Um, not necessarily needing to win, but really wanting to do it in this, this very particular way. It's a really interesting one. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of board gamers that are in the same way, or they have the same mindset, right? They, they really like to win, but they, they want to win in a certain way, especially if it's a game they've played a whole bunch and they kind of really understand things. Because if you've, if you've played a game for a while, you understand like certain strategies are better than others, but other strategies 
are, are rare, but if you can pull them off, they, they're really cool. You know, especially games that have a lot of, you know, multiple paths to victory and different combinations of things happening and things like that. And so I feel like there's a lot of gamers out there that, yeah, they love winning, but, man, they want to win in such a way that, it, that it's cool, so to speak. You know, I think chess players are the same way. I'm okay. thinking of uh, people that um, just want the point. You know, if you're in a tournament, you want the point. You want the point or the half point so mm-hmm. you, can, you can do well. And so that's just you just want to win. It doesn't matter how you do it. Yeah. But, you know, you do see sometimes people who are like, um, well, you know, this is a very pretty checkmate. You know, I use my knight and my bishop and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a certain combination. And that just sounds like that Johnny style. Yeah. It seems like it's in role-playing games, too. Some people just want to maximize their character right. so they can survive. They just want a lot of hit points and a good armor class. Other people want to do it in style. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, so let's move on, and let's talk a little bit about gender and gaming. This is something, you know, as, as we're in 2018, and, and gender issues are very in, in the forefront of people's minds, in the forefront of media and things going on, and, and yeah. trying to make things more inclusive and trying to make things better for everybody, you know, make it uh, more accessible for everybody. And so what has, have you found in your research that's just interesting, especially in, in the world of game design, uh, about gender and how game, gamers look at games and different things like that? Uh, I think that uh, the major thing that I found uh, on gender, and, and I, should, I should again say that it wasn't huge. There's not huge gender differences. I think that, you know, gamers are gamers, right? Both, both, all, all of the above genders, they're all, they're all gamers. But, but I did find there was some tendency for um, women to not really like the conflict games so much. Uh, more often than not, women would be more, um, they, they don't want the overt conflict. They don't really like the war games. They don't really like the theme. They don't really like the way the game is structured, you know, in addition to the theme. And so there was some tendency for women to prefer more socially interactive kinds of games and less conflict kinds of games. And that kind of makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, that, that sort of matches the gender roles that have been out there for a long time. You know, ma- males are more about establishing their assertiveness and their autonomy. And females are more about connection and harmony and social relationships. And that seems to show up in the gaming, too. Yeah, gotcha. kind of interesting because you... Um, you find that that's uh, a difference in the real world, and then you, you see that it shows up in the miniature world of gaming, too. You know? Right. It's real interesting, the, the microcosms and macrocosms that kind of go along with life and then into creative things like, like game design. Uh, and something that I've, yeah. I've, I've read recently, it talked about how typically, again, this isn't everybody, uh, you know, but typically in, in the general, uh, men are more concerned with things and women are more concerned with people. And that kind of... Leads into different uh, interests and different likes and stuff like that. And so I guess thinking through like game design, especially because a lot of people play games primarily with their spouse. You know, it's it's a husband and wife and they don't have a lot of time. They don't have a game group or anything like that. And so they play a lot of two player games just kind of between the two of them. And so what would be your suggestion for designers that are that are designing games for that those types of gamers, right? People that play with their spouses. Uh, What would you suggest as far as designing a game that appeals to both men and women, especially kind of in that, uh, you know, two-person uh, scenario. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And, you know, th- that's just a, a, a topic that comes up on Board Game Geek a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, what's a good couple's game? You're right. You know, Tell me a game a I can play with friends. my wife. I've seen, like, over and over and over <laughs> again, right? Yeah, my wife and I just started playing Jaipur. Okay. And uh, that's described as a good couple game and we've played it several times and we've had we've had a good time with it um but that's i guess that's a good one because 
it uh, it doesn't have that conflict. There's not so much hard feelings, and yet there's strategy. There's something to do. Um, one thing that people mentioned about that game that I think is maybe is right is that there's there's a fair amount of luck. It takes us back to that earlier conversation. Mm-hmm. Some people don't all, like all that luck, but uh, I guess a good couples game. It's going to be two player. It's going to be it's. Well, I guess I'm just going to say it's going to be less less conflict, right? You don't yeah. you don't want you don't want take that mechanics. You don't want um, people just destroying each other's positions in the game. I, I'm, I'm sure that there are couples that would, would like that game and be able to play it, but probably more often you'd want to have something that was a little bit less uh, um, intense that way. Yeah, and this is something that I've seen or I've heard Rado talks about from Rado Runs Through, uh, that he and his wife, and he, he that's what, that's their whole gaming group, pretty much. It's just him and his wife and how yeah. there's a lot of multiplayer games, you know, games that aren't specifically for two players, that they really don't like because at two players, you can't attack anybody else. So if it's a game that has a lot of attacking and a lot of you know conflict and, and taking other territories or whatever, well, there's, no, uh, there's nowhere to spread that around. Like, I'm either going to attack you or not attack at all, and if I don't attack at all, I can't win. And so just thinking through, even for a multiplayer game, uh, about the audience that you want. And so if you really want... Uh, a husband and wife or, or spouses will say, if you want spouses to be able to play a game, just be aware that uh, a lot of times they're, they're kind of uh, against that. I, mean, it gives, I think it goes back to your loss aversion, right? If I've spent an hour building something up and then you come in in, in five minutes and tear it all down, it's like, wow, yeah. that's not an enjoyable experience. That doesn't make for an enjoyable evening, does it? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we my, my wife and I were playing Space Empires for a while, which is just a complete conflict war game. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, though, is that when we played it, we would, we would develop our little empires. We would build our ships. We would explore. And then about the time where we got to the point where we were fighting, we would often call it. We're like, yeah. okay, well, you know, I think you're going to win or I'm going to win. And let, let's, let's start over. Mm-hmm. You know, so we played several games just kind of up to the point of conflict and then, and then not doing the conflict so much. The thing about that game was there's a, there's a lot going on in addition to the conflict, even though it is a war game. But if it's just a purely conflict game, that's probably not going to make, make a great couples game. Yeah. It's going to make it hard to find a great couples game because a lot of games are multiplayer, and if they're not multiplayer, then they're, they're like maybe two-player abstract games where it really is kind of I win or you lose, you know, um, and more more conflict-oriented. Well, Corey, any kind of closing thoughts, any kind of final advice, anything you would tell, you know, fledgling game designers that are working on this stuff and they're really trying to understand, okay, player psychology is obviously important. Now what? Like, what would you, what advice would you give somebody kind of in that situation? Right, right. You know, I thought about this a little bit before um, the interview, and uh, I guess for me, the motivation findings that I found were maybe, maybe the most relevant. You know, I found in addition to these various personality trait effects, I, I also found that that there's kind of three main motivations that sort of the reasons why people play games. Uh, and, and you know, I'm sure you've heard of these, but I'm going to I'm going to say them anyway. Um, there's uh, there's the the strategy, right? There's there's the strategy, the cognitive challenge, the puzzle solving. There's the thinking. Some people really like to think. And that's really what they play the game for. They want to think. They don't want a lot of chitter chatter while they're ta- while people are talking. They they want to focus on the game, right? So there's people that like to think. There's people that like theme. You know, they really want a story. What we were talking about earlier. They want that immersive experience. Uh, they want um, the narrative. They want to be entertained with the theme. 
And then there's the social, the social component. Uh, some people want that social interaction. They want to be laughing and joking and, uh, and, and taking a little bit more lightly. Those three motivations are kind of independent of each other. Uh, you could have high scores on all three. You could have low scores on all three. You could have you know, mix and match. But it just seems to me that game designers really need to nail at least one of them. You know, you've got to deliver a game that it's, it's either got to have good strategy or it's got to be a good social experience or it's got to be a really interesting, fun theme. You know, you got you got to have one, or maybe preferably two of those for it to be a good game. Uh, I wonder if you could have a great game that did not hit one of those. It just I can't even think of one that would do that. So th that that's kind of the the thing that I thought of when I was when I was getting ready to, to chat with you this afternoon. Yeah, definitely. I can see where that would uh, go a long way for a designer to really understand player motivation. And it's partially po uh, player personality, but also kind of what motivates people to get to a table and play board games in the first place. And so that was yeah. strategy, theme, and, and social interaction, social stuff going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm just trying to think through it. Yeah, you're right. I, don't, I, I can't think of any games that don't any great games. Now, there's plenty of games that don't hit on these things, right? <laughs> there's plenty, right, plenty right. of bad games out there. But, yeah, the great games, they, they hit on these things in really powerful ways, whether uh, it was just giving players incredibly like, crunchy ideas and things to think about in the strategy or, or just a really evocative theme or, or, or the social thing, Twilight Imperium, which you mentioned earlier in the show. I think that's one thing that keeps drawing people back to an eight-hour game, a 10-, 12-hour <laughs> game, right? People keep playing that, and there are some people that play that constantly, like all the time. Well, it's because it hits pretty high on all three of those. There's a lot of strategy, there's a ton of theme, and there's a lot of social interaction stuff going on. And so no wonder people, coming, people, people keep coming back. It's not uh, magic, right? It's just the way the game has been designed. And so if you can really uh, go through your design process thinking about what, what, what kind of strategies am I putting in? What kind of uh, ways am I evoking the theme? And then what kind of interactions am I creating for people at the table? I think you go a long way in making a great game. Yeah, that's just the trifecta. If you can hit all three of those, yep. and then if you if you can imagine a game that doesn't have any of those, you know, I mean, you've got like tic tac toe, right? Right. Like there's no strategy. There's no social interaction, and there's no theme. I mean, why are you playing that game, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, and then no it gets, reason to. It gets kind of into the difference between a game and an activity, right? The, those things are different, right? Tic tac toe is kind of an activity to waste some time, especially with with young children, right, <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Where a game should not be just a, a series of, of activities or an activity by itself. It should be strategic and thematic and have some social stuff going on. Yeah, I think that's, right. that's we're, really good advice. We're, we're not just killing time. We want to have an enjoyable experience. Yeah, exactly. Well, Corey, man, really uh, appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about rating systems. You, you've, oh, boy. Yeah, you've blogged a good bit about the rating systems used on BoardGameGeek, and I want to get your thoughts on using rating systems as far as playtesting and getting feedback and using certain rating systems for, for people to, to give you that feedback and for them to say, yeah, on a one-to-five scale, I think this, this part of your game was a three or whatever. I want to get your uh, psycholo psychologist uh, perspective on kind of <laughs> ways to do that effectively. So anyway, we're going to head over to the bonus round in just a minute. But again, Corey, thanks for coming on the show and good luck with all your research and, and teaching and uh, with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games.
Did I mention keep playtesting?